you know, very often there are stories that the newspapers and the Westminster bubble become obsessed with, but they don't permeate outside the M25. This has, and as I've been around the last few weeks, people say things like, well, if they can have a party, we can have a party, you know, we can do what we like kind of thing. It's, 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 um, it's led to a breakdown in trust. Uh, the sort of the whole, you know, do as I say, not as I do thing doesn't work. And Boris politically actually starts this year in a lot more trouble than most people think. And let me tell you why. And uh, no one knows this yet. Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, it's the first one of the year, but I noticed you've still got your Christmas decorations up. What's going on? Well, they go tomorrow, don't they? It's the 12 days of Christmas. Christmas is the first day of the Christmas holidays and celebrations. You've clearly, Nick, forgotten your Bible from when you were younger. You know, my first ever report card, my first ever school report card read, at least he knows the Christmas story now. So uh, <laughs> uh, I've forgotten well, only, again. Well, the, only half of it, only half of it, clearly. The, the, less, the less exciting half as far as you're concerned when you're a child, of course. Um, before we do get into something even more serious than Christmas and, and the various days of Christmas, I want to ask whether you were at that Downing Street party in the photograph and whether we're going to discover that you were amongst them all. No, sadly, I'm afraid I wasn't. Um, but, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, clearly it happened. Clearly the May open-air booze-up happened. Um, 17 people in the garden drinking wine and... They say it was a work meeting. I didn't see any pencils or papers or laptops. So, you know, they are pulling the wool. And actually, it's had a very real effect. You know, very often there are stories that the newspapers and the Westminster bubble become obsessed with, but they don't permeate outside the M25. This has. And as I've been around the last few weeks, people say things like, well, if they can have a party, we can have a party. You know, we can do what we like kind of thing. It's... it's, it's um, it's led to a breakdown in trust. Uh, the sort of the whole, you know, do as I say, not as I do thing doesn't work. And Boris politically actually starts this year in a lot more trouble than most people think. And let me tell you why. Uh, and no one knows this yet. Two polls out at the weekend. Yeah, I know it's the midterm. I know polls can be slightly unreliable, but one of them shows a 16 point lead for Labour in the red wall seats. We know about that, that was publicised. Another poll by Focal Data, a relatively new company, but you know, fully registered, British Polling Council, newspapers are using them. They did a 25,000 person poll in the last two or three weeks of December in every constituency. So they obviously had to work very hard and the trends are really interesting. Why? Why are they 16 points behind in those old Labour constituencies that went conservative. Do you know why? Because the party that I formed, and I'm now the honorary president of, I've been kicked upstairs, but Reform UK is polling in double digits in those red wall seats, because people are saying Brexit's not being completed fully. The take back control of our borders is being made a farce of in Dover every single calm day. And the prime minister, far from bringing in a new fresh kind of politics, it's the same old Etonian chumocracy you know, obsessed with net zero and things that really don't connect with us or relate to us. And it's looking a bit like Osborne and Cameron again. It really is looking like the same old metropolitan 
Tory party. And so these voters are very mobile. They, I mean, 10 years, exactly 10 years ago, I was in Barnsley for a by-election when UKIP came second in a by-election for the first time ever. Lifelong Labour voters had enough of Labour, didn't like the fact it wasn't patriotic, didn't like the fact it didn't believe in the country, didn't like the fact it was prepared to denounce our history. And those voters went from Labour to UKIP, from UKIP to the Brexit party, from the Brexit party to the Tories, and now they go into reform. Once they'd broken that generational link with the Labour party, they now are happy to use their vote in different elections as they see fit. And there's about two and a half million of them. And they are the key to deciding where politics in Britain goes from now on. And the new MPs, and this is really interesting, See, the old MPs are the old guard. You know, they have seats in Surrey with 24,000 majorities. I mean, they, they never need to meet a constituent or bother with anything. I mean, they can just go to lunch for five years. But the new lot, or the oiks, as they're called, that's what they're called, the oiks, they're kind of ex-UKIP members. They're former miners. They're ordinary folk. And they know that if they lose their seat next time, that is the end of their political career. And I think if we get past the May local elections, and if Johnson hasn't managed to reconnect, if Johnson hasn't managed to turn around this bonkers, and I'm, I mean literally bonkers, net zero policy, you know, people are going to get their bills, their gas and electricity bills, at the same time that the tax increases kick in, right? And when they understand that 25% of that electricity bill is green subsidy, paid to all sorts of bizarre schemes. I think real anger is going to set in. So my view of, of where we go uh, with Johnson is, I think he was the right man for 2019. I think he brought together the Conservative Party. He managed to get the Brexit job finished and he got a big majority. But I, whether he's the right man for now is a separate question. I'd be very surprised, Nick, if he's still there at the end of the year. And I think the Tories need to reconnect with some of their, not ideological, but some, but some genuine free market entrepreneurial thinking. You know, one of the great things with Brexit, for example, we can scrap the 5% VAT on fuel bills. We couldn't do that as EU members. It's one little example of what we could do. But actually, as you know better than anybody, genuine supply side reform of businesses who are overburdened with regulation, you, you, you could add a couple of percent to GDP very, very easily. And the Conservatives need to reconnect with entrepreneurial Britain. You know, there are six million self-employed out there, just as one little example. So I think it's going to be a very politically a difficult time for Johnson. You know, he's bounced back before from scandals and all, all sorts of scandals. But, but, but this is a kind of a loss of trust. And the parties, in a sense, where we started this conversation, have really personified that. I see this as a really good litmus test for whether Brexit's working, because we've got the EU tying themselves in knots in spectacular fashion over this same energy issue. And as far as I can tell so far, they're not doing a good job of solving the problem. Well, we're no longer stuck in that mess. So can we get it together on energy policy? Do you think there will be a positive change? Because it matters so much to, you know, to industry. And I think there's lots of German manufacturers shutting down and, and you know, a real crisis in the EU over energy. Well, yes, and of course, the EU have made themselves entirely dependent upon their so-called foe, Vladimir Putin. I mean, it's almost comical what they've done. They talked about Trump being the Russian stooge. It was Merkel all along. Perhaps you'll finish up like Gerhard Schroeder, her predecessor, and join the board of Gazprom. I mean, nothing would surprise me. 
our position is bizarre. I mean, we're currently importing coal from Kazakhstan because we still do burn coal, we still need coal. We've almost entirely stopped coal production. So we import from Kazakhstan. Over 40% of our natural gas is imported from Qatar, from Norway, a little bit from Russia. Well, we've got vast untapped reserves of our own natural gas. Uh, the nuclear program has come to a, a shuddering halt with the exception of Hinkley Point, where George Osborne gave the Chinese the most ridiculous strike price seen in history. Um, and we really are in a muddle. You know, 9% of our electricity is imported from France, for goodness sake. We are, our energy policy is wholly dependent upon other people delivering to us. You get a slight hiccup in that chain. And given that we have only about four or five days storage of natural gas, we're beginning to learn that wind energy doesn't actually work. Oh, last year was disappointing, they say, the wind didn't blow hard enough. But what about if it doesn't blow hard enough next year? So, I mean, it is actually possible that we could get blackouts. It's actually possible. And if you remember, well, you won't remember, I do just, it was blackouts that brought down the Conservatives in 1974. But these are issues. These are issues that really, really matter. So I think there needs to be a radical rethink on energy. I think we need to become absolutely um, independent on energy. In fact, I'd rather see us become an exporter of energy than an importer. But can Johnson, when he's married to Mrs. Johnson, and where they've got the global warming thing, that we're going to lead the world in all of this, you know, how do they, how do they deal with what they said at COP26 and the practical things that now need to be done? And it's going to be a heck of a challenge. And I, I just don't think Johnson can do it. At least energy policy in a political level is, is, you know, you can do a 180 very quickly, but actually building those nuclear power plants is going to be a bit of a different challenge. Let's move on to what I see causing a bit of a mess. But let's remember that modern day nuclear plants are a fraction of the size of the old monsters that we built back in the 1960s. But yes, you've got at least a four year, maybe five year lead in time. So these are big strategic decisions that need to be taken. I was going to say that what people care about these days is what the government says they're doing, not so much what they're doing. But once your power bill goes up, then I think that suddenly changes. <laughs> Let's move on to the uh, the issue of UK GDP growth, which is, of course, completely disastrous because of Brexit, except for the fact that Goldman Sachs and the OECD expect the UK to be the highest growth economy in the G7, both last year and 2022 as well. Meanwhile, in the Financial Times, there's been a poll of 100 economists. They expect us to come last in the G7 growth tables, which do you think is going to happen? Well, look, I think um, whatever the difficulties in Westminster, uh, the fact is that Brexit Britain is now a place that is attracting considerable foreign and direct investment. You know, we see American money coming into the tech sector, for example. Now, we'd like to see more. Uh, we see private equity wanting to buy supermarket chains. Uh, I mean, there is still a significant level of foreign and direct investment coming into the country. And I think, to be honest with you, I think we'll look back in a few years' time and think the pound was very cheap where it is today. The pound is very, or certainly relatively cheap. So I think we're still a very attractive place to invest, even if we're not taking full advantage of the kind of benefits we can get from Brexit. At least that option's on the table, you know, for us to be able to do. And... Big firms that want to invest here can at least have that conversation 
with government, whereas going to the European Commission is a very much harder thing to do. So look, despite political difficulties, um, there is no prospect of a hard left socialist government. You know, there's a big status Tory one, but, but there's no prospect of a Corbyn style shock. Um, I think that relative to our neighbors, I think, I mean, Greek debt GDP ratio has just gone through 200%. Uh, the gap between the North and the South, inflation is gonna make that even worse, in my opinion. Uh, financial discipline is breaking down now that Mrs. Merkel has gone. So relative to our European neighbors, we are gonna do much better than them this year and over the course of the next 10 years. Are we gonna perform anything like America? I very much doubt it. I mean, so that's how I see it. That's how I see it. But you know, the big thing is this, as the South African experts who alerted the world to Omicron, and thank you to them, because unlike the Chinese, they blew the whistle as quickly as they could. They told us, or, you know, the whole makeup of this variant, they told us it didn't attack the lungs in the way that previous Delta variants, Kent variants had, um, and they've been right. You know, I know their population is younger than ours, but they're highly unvaccinated. Um, and so we're seeing this sweep through the country, at least a million people a week are catching COVID. My bin men were late, two days late because of COVID. I've got a new postman today because the postman's got COVID. I mean, that's just typical of what's happening around the country. But very, very, in relative terms, very few people are getting ill. And I'm actually pretty bullish. I think we're coming, I think we're coming out of the end of this. I think we're learning to live with it. Um, there are difficulties with testing and difficulties with getting enough kit, but it, do you know what? Kind of, does it really even matter if this thing isn't that serious? And yes, the vulnerable, of course, have to keep being protected. But I can see us rather like 1921, 100 years ago, where you come out of this. Um, and I think, I think, I think that there will be a boomlet. There'll be a short euphoric way. You know, we're, this is all behind us. We're off to the races and everybody will pile into pub stocks and airlines and all these things. Um, and then at some point this year, we'll think, hmm, yeah, gosh, didn't we borrow a lot of money during that pandemic? Is the reason we had this growth actually just because of government spending, which I think you and I both know the truth of that and what the real answer is. And there's gonna have to be tightening both on interest rates and on, and on public deficits. So yeah, you know, we may well have, we may well have this year yet more big rises in stock markets. But I, 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 I still think, you know, that, that, that saying fine, you know, we go with it, but we've got to be very cautious about this because at some point there is going to be a reckoning. I don't know when, but at some point there just is. Let's finish on those who must not be named, the unvaccinated. Here in Japan, the government declared that they should not be discriminated against. Yeah. Meanwhile, in France, the President Macron has said that he wants to, I can't remember his words, Nigel, what were they? Well, he basically says they're not proper citizens. They, I mean, uh, I mean, as I read it, he wanted to piss them off, but uh, something yes, like that did. anyway. Yeah, he did. I mean, I, you know, as, as a public figure, I can't use those words. But the, um, no, I mean, he, but he almost says they're not proper citizens. I couldn't believe in Canada, I mean, I'm not making this up, in Canada, one of the private railway companies made you wear a yellow sticker to say that you've been vaccinated. Draw your own conclusions. 
Um, and I have to say, I, I did get double vaccinated, but I am tiring of being told I must have the booster to protect my friends and family. I have yet to see any evidence that says to me, because I've got the booster, I'm not gonna catch Omicron. I literally have yet, I, oh, it makes you 40% less likely is what people tell me. And I keep saying to them, show me the data and they can't. So I'm getting really tired of that. Does having the vaccine make you less likely to be ill? The evidence looks like it really genuinely does. But do I wanna have a fourth jab, which the Israelis have now embarked upon? Do I wanna have a fifth jab? No, I really, really don't. And I have to say, I'm one of those 10 million that have had two vaccines, but haven't yet had the booster. I'm open-minded, I can be convinced, but I haven't been convinced yet. I really, really haven't. And to treat the unvaccinated as social lepers, as outcasts, I, I just think the whole thing is disgusting. If you prove to me that by getting the booster today, that I could not catch and pass on COVID to my elderly parents or to anybody else, if you could prove that to me, then there might be an argument for getting tough on the unvaccinated. As it is, I think it's outrageous. But that was the original pitch. The initial studies showed that nobody in those studies groups had uh, even caught COVID and that nobody died or hospitalized. And so the efficacy was considered to be 100% way back in the day when people believed even transmission would be prevented by the vaccine. So the, the proof and, uh, and what actually happens over time are, are two divergent things. But I'm more interested in what happens if this discrimination for the unvaccinated becomes uh, a political and economic and a social issue um, that starts to affect you know, the, the vaccinated just as much. For example, you know, the, the NHS or the Defence Forces. And these are some of the issues that have come up so far. Do you think this could get out of hand? I think, um, I think there is a really quite determined 10% of the population who are not going to have any of the vaccines. You know, I've had the, I've, I've had the two shots. I say I'm, I'm unconvinced yet on the booster. That 10% aren't going to change. That 10% in some European countries is more like 20, 25%. And they've made their minds up. And some of it may well be scaremongering rubbish on the internet. But it is up to people to make their own decisions. It is not for the state to medicate us. I mean, that, that as a concept, you know, just harks back to the extremes of left and right. And I think if governments push this too hard, if the Austrians really go as far as compulsory vaccinations, dragging people out of their houses onto the street and injecting them, then I think they've bitten off more than they can chew. And I think there, there would be civil unrest against that on an unprecedented scale. We, we simply cannot go down that route as modern, Western countries, and if the majority would have allowed that to happen, uh, then goodness knows what the long-term consequences are. I, I think we've reached a point where governments just cannot push any further. Well, I'm just as worried as you are, Nigel Farage. Thanks for joining us.